Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone and is a project of EEI, the Edison Electric Institute. The National Trade Association, representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. Well, hello and welcome back to The Current Podcast, a podcast for We Stand for Energy. I am EEI Senior Director of Public Affairs, Jeff Ostermeyer, sitting in for Christine Telford, who is currently out on maternity leave. So today we have a very special guest. Mr. Ed Hears is a energy fellow at the University of Houston and is a world-renowned, I'd say, expert in the realm of utility deregulation and how that impacts customers and exactly what that means. Ed is a very well-respected expert, and so we're glad to have him here today. Ed, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Jeff. So we'll go ahead and kind of jump into the conversation as, you know, this topic of deregulation seems to circle around every couple of years and I think it means several different things to different folks. So could you, you know, give our listeners a little background on the issue of deregulation and sort of how it came about and in, in where we are today? Yes. You know, the really short version is that for uh, electricity infrastructure, the old utility infrastructure, everybody built for reliability. The prices were controlled. The utilities got a very certain rate of return. In fact, you know, that's how we got the Dow Jones utility average. That was really safe for investors. And the goal for the nation was to have reliable electricity service, not just for residential consumers, of course, but for our industry. And this is a critical component of the nation's well-being. You know, without electricity, we're not in the 21st century. And so we overbuilt. And in the 70s, as the spate of deregulation efforts crossed over from trucking to shipping to almost any industry one could point to, in the late 80s and early 90s, folks looked at electricity utilities. And they found that, well, goodness, some of these generators only run one month out of the year. For example, in Texas, Everybody knows that all the generators need to be operating in August. You know, that's peak demand. But the rest of the year, we don't need that much. This past summer, we hit 80 gigawatts of peak demand. And the rest of the year, the average is about 50 gigawatts. And so for a vast majority of time, not all of the generators are in use. And the optimization folks decided that they could maybe find a way to shave this and save consumers money by only paying these generation plants when they were actually pouring electricity into the grid. And so that was the genesis of the deregulation, optimization, maybe getting away from overbuilding of the capital plant. You know, conceptually, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. Maybe we don't need a grid that's 99.999% reliable. Maybe 95% will do. That was the genesis of it. California led the way in 1993 and implemented Assembly Bill 1890 in, in 1996 and had their first crisis shortly thereafter. Texas implemented their model of deregulation really on the heels of the California energy crisis, not ever learning from what befell California. And then other grids and other states have kind of followed, not quite in the same fashion or manner, but they've reached this point where they've gone to kind of a just-in-time electricity generation 
model, a just-in-time pricing, if you will, which brings a heck of a lot of volatility and a lot of underinvestment. We've seen this, you know, economists first began writing about this in 2006, 2007. The utilities were not making a rate of return. The transmission companies not making a rate of return. And in Texas, for nine of the last 11 years, the power generation companies have not made a rate of return. They haven't had a price high enough to justify new investment. Terrific. Yeah. So that takes us right to Texas, as you mentioned. And so can you, you know, give our listeners a little refresher on, you know, what happened in Texas with Winter Storm Uri and, you know, what are some of the other impacts, you know, deregulation might have customers? So, you know, I want to point out that Texas is really the poster child for this deregulation effort. It's not a Republican or Democratic issue. It's not a partisan issue. This comes from the political leadership wanting to give voters, in this case also electricity consumers, cheaper electricity. So that that's our, our point of departure. In 2011, Texas had a polar vortex that came through and caused a grid failures across the northern part of the state. People died, huge economic losses. And the North American Electric Reliability Corporation issued a 340-page report outlining specific actions that had to be taken to ensure the reliability of the Texas grid. We had an issue in 2014 with a freeze. You know, then we come to 2021 and we go from a projected need of 68 gigawatts to less than 16 gigawatts actually being provided to the grid during the freeze. We were more than 50 gigawatts short. And this is because the management of the grid, managed by the leadership in Austin, really had ignored the requirements to weatherize the Texas grid. Keep in mind that the power plants had no incentive to do this. They're not planning on all of them having to be available. And it's kind of a game, if you will. Um, I don't have to have my plants up. Maybe NRG will have theirs up, or Vistra will, or Calpine, or Nextera. I don't have to do this because if I put money into building this plant for winter weather and I don't get the winter weather, then I've spent money that I'm not compensated for. If, on the other hand, I don't have to put my plant into the, the mix, I know that with the Texas market, a shortage market or a scarcity market, as it's called, for those plants that I do have operating, I'm going to clean up. So the incentives were actually misaligned. The price in Texas went to $9,000 a megawatt hour, and some entities made billions, while others lost billions and consumers lost their lives. So what have you seen in, in other states in terms of you know, the, the impact of this on deregulation? Has it had that goal of lowering prices for customers? Not altogether. You know, most of the other states have worked to try and maintain some sort of level of reliability well beyond what Texas does. And that's because they're under federal regulation by FERC. You know, certainly PJM, MISO, the Southwest Power Pool had the same sort of weather that Texas had in 2021. And they had outages as well, but they also had 
a really quick recovery because those plants and utilities had worked to weatherize to address these shortfalls. You know, as we look at pricing, for example, over the last dozen years, Texans have actually paid more than they would have had the market stayed in a vertically regulated system framework. The genesis of regulation was to have not a bunch of different power plants up and down the street, not having a bunch of different wires coming to your house. The the concern was that these were natural monopolies, that once they had put the wire into your house, that you know Edison General Electric would charge you as much as they possibly could. And so in the public interest, we began to do price regulation. Utilities would add up all their kilowatt hours over the year, divide through by their costs, their capital expenditures, go to the Public Utility Commission or the Regulatory Commission and say, hey, for us to make a 9%, 10%, 16% return on equity, this is what we need to charge. And so that plays out in many jurisdictions across the United States in comparisons with Texas and the ERCOT market, those consumers actually pay less and get more. So in terms of this issue of deregulating the markets, what other states are you seeing kind of this issue come up in nowadays? Well, most recently, an initiative to deregulate the market in Wyoming was considered by the legislature and I think effectively tabled for now. But that doesn't mean it won't come back. Louisiana is arguing back and forth over whether they want to have a deregulated market. But, you know, frankly, they're not married. There are no good models for this. The Public Utility Commission of Texas did with a consultant to provide a, a new market model, if you will, for ERCOT. The chairman of the Public Utility Commission, Peter Lake, had said many times over the past year that the ERCOT model needs to be totally scrapped, that it's not working. But instead, what they're considering is kind of an adjunct to this electricity-only market that they have. And in a, a brief description, which, of course, since, since I'm in Houston, if, if the Astros were, the world champion Astros, were paid on an electricity-only basis, then only those players taking the field in any game would get paid. Those on the bench wouldn't get paid. If we applied the same thing to a newscaster, only those minutes on television, on the screen, would that newscaster be paid? And not, not for the hours behind the scene putting stories together. And so that's the issue we have here. And so what the Public Utility Commission of Texas is considering is an adjunct, a smaller market, a capacity market. What kind of impact would that have if you, you know, just made an exception to create a deregulated marketplace for, you know, large consumer companies and tech companies and things like crypto miners? just to deregulate that kind of market, I'd assume that would have an impact on residential customers and all the other folks. Well, it does. And in a more broad sense, the Texas market is just partially deregulated. You know, the retail electricity providers say, let's go back and take a look at a full vertically integrated utility. We have a generator, we have a transmission line, we have the local company that brings the power to your door and somebody who bills you. And so in Texas and in California and others of these so-called deregulated markets, they're only partially deregulated. So what they've done is they, they have a monopsony situation on the front side with the generators. The generators are certainly competing day by day to get into the market because they want to be fed. And as it happens, 
their marginal cost becomes whatever they bid into the market. And this is the genesis of generators in Texas not being able to earn a rate of return. And that is why over the last, well, uh, the years 2010 to 2021, the generators have actually left the Texas market. They've unhooked, they plugged into Mexico because they can make more money. And so that part of the market is squeezed. The retail electricity providers, the folks who send out our bills, they're squeezed because, you know, electrons, electron, we're not marketing anything new here. The transmission companies and the local distribution companies are fully regulated. They get a guaranteed rate of return. And so we have essentially, if you think about it, a market that's constrained in the middle and the generation end and the retail end are supposedly there to compete. What do you think are some of the factors at play here for folks trying to push for this now? Well, uh, you know, the, the first group in to testify during the hearings in Austin following the grid failure was the Ice Futures U.S., the commodities traders, uh, the financial guys who trade commodities, who can arbitrage the industrial user against the residential user against the generation companies for the delivery of electricity at prices certain and prices uncertain. Bankers make a lot of money. Commodities traders make a lot of money on this type of business. And so with the Texas deregulation, since the retailer doesn't really contract directly with the generation company and it all has to go through ERCOT as a market clear. I mean, ERCOT is, is the traffic cop, if you will, for electrons around the Texas grid. This is engineers. They're really not in the position of being able to be market clearers or market makers like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. But that's how this market has developed over time. And as a result, we have hedging activities, we have speculators on the other side, and the consumer winds up paying for this in terms of increased volatility, increased cost to try and lock in a set rate, for example. So my rate this year is, I think, 14 cents a kilowatt hour. That's up from nine cents a kilowatt hour with last year's contract. Keep in mind, even though I had a fixed rate contract throughout 2021, I'm going to be paying for the billions of dollars that were lost in the freeze because the state government decided that the consumers should bail out those companies that lost billions of dollars. So in terms of DREG in other parts of the country, how do these policies interact with some of the resource adequacy issues we're seeing in the Northeast going into this winter? So we get to the crux of the matter. If a company can't earn a rate of return, they're not going to make an investment and build a new generator. In fact, they won't reinvest to keep the one that is in place operating. You know, there's certainly pressures on fossil fuel plants. The national initiative to reduce carbon emissions is hitting the coal plants first. They truly are the dirtiest plants that we operate. Then, you know, the oil plants and then natural gas plants. And the generators in the Northeast have been under fire, if you will, for quite some time. In fact, not only the fossil fuel plants, but the nuclear power plants, Vermont Yankee, Connecticut Yankee, uh, Indian Point, these have all been closed as a matter of public policy. 
The states, though, have recognized, of course, the fact that these plants are necessary for a low-carbon future, at least for the time being. The states have, have directed payments to the owners of the two nuclear power plants upstate in New York and in Connecticut as well for the owners of Millstone. Uh, those two power units provide between 40 and 65 percent of Connecticut's daily electricity usage. The lack of an opportunity to make money means that Wall Street won't finance new power plants and won't allow the owners to keep up. Fascinating. Very interesting and informed conversation here. One final question. Do you think at the end of the day, adopting this kind of policy has been beneficial to customers or really has it kind of had a detrimental impact on customers? Well, as it turns out, it's obviously detrimental. If you wind up a couple of days, three, four days without electricity, you know, this is this is certainly the definition of, of detrimental. You, you know, the politician look, looked at everything and, and they found that they could pursue an expedient process of making use of the fact that the utility plant was overbuilt over time and they could run this down over over some period of time and and pass along a, a penny wise a pound foolish approach they ignored the need for reliability this is a real challenge in texas the economy has grown from 1.25 trillion in 2010 to 1.99 trillion in 2021 but the fleet of thermal generators, dispatchable generators, coal, natural gas, and nuclear, that fleet has actually shrunk in size. There's no doubt that with 30 gigawatts of installed renewable energy capacity in Texas, Texas is leading the way for developing renewable energy resources on the grid. But the Batteries have not been developed to the point where they can do anything more than three or four hours of, of peak shaving. There's a need to maintain the coal plants. There's a need to maintain the gas plants and the nuclear plants. The coal plants in Texas average 50 years in age. They are reaching the end of their operational lives. The gas plants are reaching 30 years in average age, and they're reaching the end of their operational lives. And there is no incentive for the owners of these plants to keep them on the grid. Day in, day out, they're not making money. And so until we get to the point where battery technology is affordable and can take the grid through periods of time where wind and solar aren't working, you know, we need these these legacy plants to be available to drive reliability. Otherwise, you know, the consumer is going to get used to third world type of electricity outages day in, day out. That's the future with this mode of deregulation that we're seeing in Texas and across other parts of the nation. Well, thank you for this discussion, Ed. We really appreciate it. And I think our, our listeners will be more educated on this matter. That does it for this episode. We hope that you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights on energy policy. To learn more about EEI in the electric power industry, visit eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current in We Stand for Energy.